0: Hi, welcome to Yuskogans, the International Law Podcast. Today, we have a very interesting episode. We have changed the format a little bit. We have nine people from all over the world, and we are going to talk about the experiences, the challenges, and opportunities of young professionals pursuing or trying to pursue a career in international law. Uh, as you can see, there's a lot of uh, us in this podcast, and we have tried to you know, make it as diverse as possible uh, so that we have an interesting and have unique perspectives from all over the world. So, just to you know, get the discussion going, I'd like to start with uh, Yusra. Uh, if you can just you know, tell us a bit about your background and why you chose to you know, pursue a career in international law and what you're doing currently.
1: Well, thanks very much for having me. It's um, a pleasure to be here with all of you today and engage in this really interesting discussion. Um, so, I'm currently based in Geneva, Switzerland, where I am completing my uh, PhD in public international law at the University of Geneva. Um, prior to um, the, reaching the end stages of the PhD, I was in The Hague for a little bit working at the International Court of Justice, and I've also worked at the um, International Labour Organization Administrative Tribunal. And uh, I chose to study international law simply because um, it's really the only thing that resonated with me and my values and interests when I started law school.
0: All right, great. Uh, can we have a few more? Maybe uh, Mohit, can you, you know, tell us a bit about why international law as a career is something that you know you decided to pursue, or that something that you think would be a viable, uh, you know, career for you?
2: Thank you very much, Omer, for having me today, and uh, I I'm very honored to be here uh, to tell you a bit about myself. It's been exactly five years that I have been trying to tread on the pricky path of public international law. But uh, my motivation behind this area of law was the very fascination of how anything and everything that comes under the sun falls within the purview of this. And which is why Ever since I entered law school, I think I saw Ian Brownlee in my library and and the interest just catapulted from there, to be extremely honest. And coming to your second prong of the question, which is that, why is this a viable option? I think whether it's viable or not is something which is, I guess, a premature uh, assumption to make, but it is uh, what has been a passion and particularly... Coming from India, I do believe that the pitch that India has at the United Nations right now, where I've had some kind of experience in the pursuit of trying to find a permanent seat at the United Nations Security Council, I think that many people like me uh, have to develop interest in this. And I think it's time for having some equilibrium of South Asia in this niche field of
0: law, right, perfect. Uh, so, uh, there's general uh, an assumption by you know people that there are there are not a lot of opportunities in international law, and there are these uh, prestigious organizations such as the ICC, the ICJ, and other international criminal tribunals, and they offer uh, internships. Most of them are usually unpaid, uh, and a lot of students who, after doing their LLMs, they uh, get one of these internships and then they finish these internships, and then they apply for another internship, and then they finish another internship, and they still are unable to get a job uh, in those organizations or related organizations. Has anybody of you, uh, you know, experienced cert- uh, similar problems while trying to forge a career as an academic, or as a practitioner, or as an advisor? Uh, maybe uh, I'll go to uh, Aisha, uh, if you, know, you can you know, tell us a bit about your experience.
3: Thank you very much for having me uh, tonight. Uh, I'm Ayshe from Istanbul, Turkey, and I'm newly graduated from Sorbonne Law School, Element uh, in international law. So uh, my dream was to work in international law, but Turkish practice is in international law has to be more developed, although we have very old diplomacy traditions. Um, our practice is limited with, uh, just now for European Court of Human Rights, uh, and so, as a lawyer, I admit that I have no many opportunities in my country in litigation. Uh, my possible um, roadmap is to pursue a PhD degree and move on with academia, but I would really gain uh, experience in litigation. And we found uh, an international law association, Yuskantium, in 2016, and our dream is to turn it into an academy. And um, association gave me different perspectives on very different topics like rule of law, gender, transitional justice, and a huge impact uh, on my career path. However, uh, I would be really um, happy if I can uh, carry all this together one day, academia, litigation, and uh, how to say association.
0: Uh, Taylor, I'd like to come to you. So, how has your experience been after you know doing an LLM in international law and trying to find you know some suitable opportunities in the field?
4: First of all, thank you, Omar and Cheyenne, for having me on the podcast. I'm really thrilled to be taking part in this conversation with everyone. So, I have a background in law and international studies I'm from Melbourne, Australia, which is where I'm from. And in 2018, I moved to the Hague, the Netherlands, to pursue the Master of Public International Law at Leiden University. Um, While I was at Leiden, I secured a position as a research assistant at Human Rights in Practice, a strategic human rights litigation practice. Uh, And once I graduated, I got an internship um, at the Aster Institute, an international law research institute based in The Hague. Uh, in that position, I conducted legal research on my main fields of interest being uh, international human rights law international humanitarian law and international criminal law. Uh, I finished my internship in January of this year, and I was lucky enough to be offered a temporary contract at the institute, which I know is not all of, always the case, um, but in my experience, uh, particularly um, where I've been working, it has been the case that uh, people and interns have been given the opportunity to stay on for a temporary contract afterwards. So I feel really lucky in that respect. And I think also one of the really beneficial things about doing this internship for me was <clears throat> building my network and meeting people who work in the field and really inspired me. So that's kind of been my experience
5: so far.
6: So my question is directed towards Raghavi and Tola. In fact, both of you, Raghavi, sorry. Uh, so uh, if you compare your situation before you did your LLM and after you did your LLM. So how has the transition been like and has it really thrusted your career in a way you sort of expected it to? We'll start with Ragavi and then we'll move on to Tola. Uh,
7: thank you so much for having me. Uh, so my name is Raghavi. I'm a lawyer trained in India. I did my bachelor's degree, in an integrated bachelor's degree in arts and law from India. And then I went on to pursue my first masters at the University of Oxford and now I'm doing an advanced LLM at uh, Leiden in public international law but I'm in, I intend to specialize in international criminal law. Now I think for me uh, in the penultimate year of my bachelor degree I became interested in international criminal law and, and I knew that I wanted to focus on this niche area but I did not really have the opportunities to uh, find more advanced training for this in India particularly because India is not uh, so centrally involved in the policy making and the litigation in this field. Um, So I knew that if I needed more advanced training, I would have to pursue uh, a higher higher education degree abroad. And for me, Oxford was really the most ideal platform for me to not only receive training and exposure to uh, top academics in the field, but also gave me uh, a real push in terms of access to opportunities. Uh, At the end of my course at Oxford, where I also studied international criminal law as one of my modules, I got a fellowship from Judge Meron, who was actually teaching us that year, which was really a fantastic uh, experience. He awarded a fellowship where I I got the money to pursue a a three, four-month internship at the IRMCT. And I feel like uh, through the fellowship, through interacting with him, I also had a clearer idea of wanting to enter academia in the field, And I knew that I wanted some time after the internship to mull over it to receive more advanced training and to find out really what I want to specialize in. So there there has been a very material and conspicuous uh, difference, I'd say, in my life and in my understanding of what I expect from the field post my LLM degree.
8: All right. um, Thank you very much. Um, My name is Tola Noemi. I'm a Nigerian. I have uh, my first degree in law and my master's degree from the University of Cambridge um, in the United Kingdom. Um, I'm currently the Assistant Chief Negotiator for the entire Nigerian government, Um, and I was instrumental for negotiating the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, which is um, probably the biggest agreement in trade um, after the WTO agreement of um, 1994. Um, and I was lead negotiator for Nigeria in that regard. Um, so focusing on your question about um, my LLM. So for some context, um, when I finished my undergrad, I did not specifically um, think I was going to go do um, a specialization in international law. Actually, when I went for my master's, what happened was that I thought I was going to be an international commercial lawyer, um, transactions and all that kind of stuff. And then what happened was when I started classes, I thought, you know what, the best transactional lawyers I know do not particularly a master's degree. So maybe it's, uh, it's a waste of time to spend my time trying to do uh, a master's degree in commercial law area. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to attend every class. And whichever class I think I enjoy the most is the one I'm going to actually try and do a model in. So it was supposed to be an experimentation. So I attended all the classes, and then I ended up doing more models in international law. Um... um um, particularly, the international economic law areas, which international IP, um, international public international law, and all that, and um, and the popular um, George Crawford of the um, ICJ actually taught me. And so, what happened was, I then wrote a thesis in um, on cross retaliation under the WTO rules, um, helping Antigua and operationalize the judgment they had gotten from the WTO Tribunal. And that basically launched my career, because what happened was that shortly after that, I started speaking in a number of panels and advising a number of governments on how to structure that. Um, shortly after that, I got a, a role, uh, more like an role, at the Organization for the Prohibition of camp Weapons, thanks to this, um, my master's degree. And then I got poached by the Nigerian government to come serve as a special advisor on industry trade and investments for president. And then set up the standalone trade office for the country and lead as a um, trade negotiator for the country. And due to that, the AFCFTA became a priority, and then we mashed out the agreement for the AFCFTA. So when I traced the entire record, definitely my LLM was where that, that journey started. Of course, I'd done international and another career, but the definitive moment of knowing that I wanted to start a career, and also picking up the tools and even the credentials, because what happened was I could then have a conversation and say, oh, I know international, international law. But I have a degree in it and I've written this research and these tests in it. And so I could speak on those issues. So, yes, it was a very tra- trajectory changing moment for me to have my LLM in international law.
6: So moving this along, Alexander, so in choosing Leiden, what did you specifically look for? So at the time that you were applying, what specific factors were you looking in a uh, school for you to say, OK, this is the best fit for me?
5: Um so first of all hi everyone my name is uh, Alexandre Nicolai i'm uh, i'm french and uh, yeah i uh, did uh, my first llm in public international law in leiden uh, last year and i'm currently a student for a second masters program in paris at université paris 2 pantheon assas um, uh, with a focus on international criminal law and uh well maybe I will be able to, uh, uh, on this podcast, be able to present the French perspective on public international law, at least the the French bubble, uh, because it it is very much a bubble, in the sense that um, uh, I did not know a lot outside of this bubble while I was in my bachelor. And I wanted to go to Leiden, specifically to discover, well, what's outside of it and also uh i took a look uh a look at the um, the rankings online and every every one of them said that leiden had the number one in the world pil program and so because i had fallen in love with the subject of course i wanted to go there and uh i applied i didn't expect to get in but i uh, i did and uh then i uh I went there and I was very happy with, uh, with what I found there. Uh, the, the, the network I've made, the contacts I've made uh, there uh, have been really useful. I am currently an intern as well uh, in The Hague uh, within the Kosovo Specialist Chambers uh, and I think that would not have been possible without my uh, Leiden degree because it has streamlined a lot of my uh, my work so far. Um, have I answered your question? Yeah,
6: in fact, you have. So taking on from the French bubble that you speak of, so we know that both English and French are the operative languages of the UN. So this is a question for you, Yusra, and whoever else knows French. How has knowing more languages or knowing the official languages of the UN impacted or progressed your career in the field of public international law?
1: So uh, I am a a bilingual English French speaker and uh, in my personal experience, um, I feel like in almost every professional opportunity I've had um, my bilingualism has been a huge factor that has interested um, potential employers. Um, and that even is applicable to my teaching job currently at the university because I teach um, my course in both English and French, um, and that's what was being um, searched for at the time. So. Um, generally, not French in particular, uh, but I would just say all languages are really beneficial. Um, But there are some specific um, domains of work or um, institutions where French is particularly valued. And an example would be the International Court of Justice, um, wherein um, they do um, value, for example, I participated in the Judicial Fellowship Program as a trainee. Um, And there you do have to have um, at least a minimum level of French, um, at least in theory, uh, to uh, apply for the program. So um, I, I definitely can't emphasize that enough to just work on any languages. I think that could be a great plus to um, anyone CV. Mm,
0: there, there's this uh, more topical issue that I would like to talk about. That's something which Aritola and uh, even uh, Raghavi mentioned earlier that there's, uh, there's this perception that international law today is mostly uh, based in a few centers around the world in Europe and perhaps mm-hmm. in the U.S. And in, in a lot of institutions are primarily based in close proximity in a few areas of the world. So in terms of specialization, whether it's your LLM or your PhD, what are the factors that uh, you know, influence uh, you to choose a particular specialization? And how do you choose these particular institutions that you have talked about? Uh, what are those aspects that are the most uh, dominant in your decision making? So maybe Mohit, uh, uh, since you you know talked about this uh, thing earlier, maybe you can uh, take it from here.
2: Thanks, Omer. Uh, just before I address this, I had one very interesting observation as a follow-up to what uh, Yusra said actually about French as a language. I'm happy to share with all of you that in this September, actually, I am uh, going to go to the International Court of Justice as a judicial fellow. And I had been applying for this position for the past three years from Stanford University. And each year I asked myself as to what is the reason as to why I'm not getting this position. And my answer lied in the fact that in my first two years, I didn't have enough French proficiency. So I think that says a lot about the question that you had asked. And now coming to the other question, which is about the thought process behind choosing an LLM. So I'm going to share my personal journey here. I pursued my LLM in international and environmental law from Stanford University. And uh, at the time when I was applying, I already had certain chalked out subject matters which were of interest to me, which were public international law, environmental law, human rights, and investment arbitration. Now, I told myself that the synthesis of these four interests is having a common ground which has got to do with factors which are very important in the current scenario, such as climate change, biodiversity, health. I mean, I needn't say more with the outbreak of COVID-19 as to how important such issues are so this was the thought process behind the subject matter now there is a very cliched yet important debate about university reputation versus course reputation whenever we're choosing our masters now everybody wants the best of both the worlds ideally and i consider myself extremely fortunate to having found both in my pursuit because uh, i don't know Uh, how well this is known, but Stanford, amongst the top schools as we speak about, holds the unique distinction of having four very niche crafted uh, sub-specializations. So essentially when we receive our degrees, we have that specialization on our diploma. So given that the environmental law and policy specialization also happened to be one of the best in the world, alongside Stanford's reputation and undoubtedly the position that I had led me to one, one thing after the other and it was essentially a foot in the door. I did have to do many unpaid internships after that but those as everybody has been sharing transitioned into paid consultancy and finally as to what I just shared with all of you. Thanks.
0: Right, great. Uh, Can we have one more uh, opinion on this, Uh, perhaps, uh, Taylor?
4: So I think that, indeed, as already has been mentioned, there probably are certain bubbles of international law that kind of are based in different cities. When we think of The Hague, we think of international criminal justice with the ICC and numerous tribunals. When we think of Geneva, we think of the work that the ICRC does and international humanitarian law. But, so I think if you already know when you're moving into your masters that you really have your heart set on one particular strain, one particular area of international law, then maybe this is a good way for you to narrow it down. But that being said, for me, When I started, I didn't really know what I was interested in. And I was really happy with the program at Leiden because it really touched on a whole host of different areas. And I knew that I had inadvertently come into the International City of Peace and Justice in The Hague and that there would be a lot of opportunities in terms of internships in international criminal justice institutions here. But I I think there are still opportunities uh, for you to pursue your interests not being just confined to those bubbles. So I think even if you find yourself in a place where everyone is talking about ICL, don't let that stop you from talking about climate change or international humanitarian law or out of space law. I think if you if you already have a really clear idea, then go for it. But I wouldn't necessarily, I didn't feel limited by that.
0: Right, uh, Raghavi, uh, you'd like to add something?
7: Yeah, so, Sorry about that. No, that's okay. uh, so uh, just on the point of uh, PhDs, uh, I feel like the considerations are slightly different. At least they were for me. And um, I do think that you a couple of different factors usually play in your mind. Um, in this point, I wanted to say two things. Firstly, on the question of how do you decide what you want to specialize in, I think that's completely interest. Um, through your research experiences, through your moot court experiences, your papers. Once you know you want to do a PhD, the topic will really appear to you. So uh, I don't think you need to chase it, it will come to you. That's number one. But uh, second, on where to do the PhD, um, at least when I was doing this search personally, I found that there's a real dearth of information on uh, what to look for in a PhD program and where to do your PhDs. And there are actually lots of considerations that are not publicly known. For instance, um, in the UK, all PhD courses are paid courses, which is not the design in, the, uh, in Europe. So the Anglo-Saxon design is very different from um, the design in the Europe. Uh, similarly, the process of looking for funding um, is also far more stringent in the UK than it is for European programs. In most European universities, if you get admitted to a PhD, you are also admitted to a scholarship at the same time. Um, also, I think a big consideration for the PhD is accessibility. So your ease of access to courts, tribunals, or basically sites where your research is located—that's also a big consideration. So I think that um, not just what is otherwise known, which is concentration of faculty or um, or or the reputation of the university—I think there are other aspects like funding. Um, the the ties that the university has with governments, uh, or even how easy it is to access your resources, that um, really claim your mind when you
0: right to do a PhD. Oh, great, uh, Aishay, you like to add something?
3: Yes, I'd like to add something to what Th- Taylor said uh, a couple minutes ago. Um, at that time, I applied for five LLM programs: uh, Sorbonne, Queen Mary, Strasbourg, Geneva, and Leiden. And um, I got negative answer from Leiden uh, without any reasonable explanation. Uh, I really thought at that, that period um, results were political because Turkey had a diplomatic crisis uh, with Netherlands. Uh, then I started my master's degree in Sorbonne Pantheon, and the French system uh, is really hard, and I had many difficulties to adapt myself in a, into a new methodology. Uh, however, I was very interested with human rights, humanitarian law, etc. And my paper was on enforced disappearances in Bosnia, but the jury was the worst experience in my life, and uh, thankfully, I'm graduated. <laughs> So I would like to say um, subjects are not limited, so um, knowing ourselves is a long, long life uh, experience. So uh, that's, what, that's what I want to add to Taylor's speech.
0: Uh, Right. There's uh, something interesting that I just uh, observed uh, that, uh, based on uh, Mohit's experience, and congratulations for securing the uh, judicial fellowship. I hope you're able to join uh, during these very uncertain and difficult times. uh, Is that there are two schools of thoughts. One is that being in close proximity to these international institutions and proximity uh, makes it more likely for someone, perhaps from the global south or even otherwise to choose an LLM program or a PhD program in the UK or in Europe, while uh, Mohit had a different experience. He went to the US uh, and he was still able to, you know, achieve the same goals, uh, you know, which uh, perhaps a student w- would have aspired for uh, going, to the Euro- going to Europe or, or the UK. Uh, so Tola and Alexander, uh, perhaps incorporate these elements in, in, in your points as well. I see that you'd like to contribute something uh perhaps uh, tola you can go first and then alexander uh you yeah
8: so so i have a range of thoughts um to um, put on this topic i think the first thing I, i'd like to say is that um i find that because international law is a very small community, it's a very relationship-based community. And I, think, and I think it's important to identify that and say that over and over again. It's a very relationship-based community. People don't alight as much the places of conferences and um, those kind of places where you informally make relationships with um, experts in the field. Because the thing is the world just goes around. People know what opportunities are available. People know what's gonna happen. A number of times, and I, I probably learned this pretty early because I had a mentor figure and uh, in, in the international law space. But the truth is, to a great extent, they generally know who's going to get the opportunities. It's just the nature of it, right? So one of the things I would say is that um, one of the advantages that universities that are based in most of those concentric circles have, probably Geneva or The Hague, is that Professionals in that field will focus on that universities because they're probably working there, they're living there, and so of course they want to teach there. But the truth regardless is that there's still, to a great extent, a diverse pool that those institutions still try to attract. And what happens a number of times, and I've seen this happen a number of times, that people go to conferences, make a good presentation at a conference, make a beautiful relationship with someone who's an expert at those conferences, and then next thing you know, you want to send an application in, and then you can actually reach those people and say, oh, I'm sending my application to this organization, what do you think? And they'll be like, oh, I'll put in a word for you, and generally that. And I, and I think it's better to say the place of relationships, because the opportunities are also very limited. And there's also a financial implication. So what I mean by that is this. If you got an internship in the UN system in Geneva or The Hague, okay, well, let, let me keep Geneva out of it. But The Hague, they're not going to get paid. And that is a very serious consideration for a lot of people because you're going to have to approach yourself from the US or from Nigeria and then move to a place like that. Another thing to also say in making considerations more general around schooling is, I find that, and it's probably my experience, that I find that it's best to focus on also the the faculty so the lecturers in that school what's the experience that students in that school have had with building relationship with faculty and the reason that's important is that i found that to a great extent because these people already have some credibility they can lend you just credibility in giving advice so for instance any grassroots can in cambridge lends me a lot of credibility in my in most of my career after um, university of cambridge right so there's also that you're looking out for you're looking for what's this lecturer? what's that And, and i find for instance that my experience is i Either you go for very experienced lecturers who are older or mid-level professionals. They generally a lot more ready to help um, young career professionals just starting their careers, either because they've already reached the climax of their careers or because they're also at the mid-level of it, so they're ready to give you a leg up. The two other things I'll flag is that um, in picking considerations i know it's very fancy to want to pick a school where that has a very great name and has a great pedigree but one thing i'll say also is that i think always look for opportunities that allows you to have a taste of the variety of what international law offers. People think they want to do international economic law, till they find out that there's something called human rights law. People think they want to do labor law, till they find out that there's something called space law. So I find that it's always better to go from the general to the particular. So start from a more generalistic idea. And then you can, after experiencing a range of it, you can then say, oh, I want to narrow down on this. The last thing I'll say on this, uh, more generally, also is that my experience and and having to having to mentor young or other young professionals coming up in their career, my experience as also being that when you are trying to shoot for this, I think also focus on decide quickly where what you want to do with your international law degree. So, do you want to litigate? Do you want to be an advisor or a consultant? Do you want to be an academic? Do you just want? And because the different universities have different kind of opportunities that come with them. So for instance, if you went to the U S for instance, you'll probably get a lot more academic options than if you were in a place like the Hague, you know, or if you went to sort of like the, the, the Geneva, you probably have a lot more opportunities of meeting top professionals in the international economic law field. So I think those considerations are also important. What do you want to do with it? Do You want to practice? Do you want to litigate? Do you want to be an academic? Those are considerations you also want to look at when making these decisions.
5: Tola touched on some of the points I, I wanted to mention, so I, I'm, uh, I'm not going to repeat what he just said, and I'm just going to maybe add some of the perspective from within that French bubble, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, I, I don't know if people are aware of that, but in France, you're not actually allowed to do internships if uh, you are not linked to a university. So if you're not actually following up on a degree, you're not allowed to um, to, well, be working for uh, an institution in France, institution or company or whatever. This is because they really want to make sure that the the employer, the, the company or the institution is following French labor law. So they make you sign a contract and everything. It's, uh, it's a real hassle, but it's in the interest of the the students and the university. And so this means that in the French view, internships are always linked with your studies. And that means that once you're done with your degree, French students typically are not going to straightaway jump into internships. What they typically will do, and this is also what I will do, I admit, is attempt to pass the bar. And only then, once they pass the bar, which is a big exam with... uh, Uh, about 25 percent of those who try it that actually uh, uh, succeed. Uh, Only then, once they pass it, will they maybe attempt to do some internships abroad if they specialize in international law, typically. And uh, this is why uh, the the topic of clinics, for instance, is really starting to Get some to to gain some steam in France because that wasn't the case ten years ago. Clinics are starting to pop up everywhere just to offer more and more students opportunities to uh, gain some experience which they would not have because they would need to get an internship in the Hague, for instance. Uh, so th- this is one of the reasons which pushed me to create my own clinic in Paris. Uh, to offer students an opportunity to gain some experience in ICL and uh, uh, international humanitarian law as well. Uh, Despite not setting a foot outside of this French bubble, I'm trying to uh, get them to the experience of having an internship without actually uh, risking, well, putting them at risk or the university at risk and uh, yeah I thought that was uh, really interesting especially considering what Aisha said earlier with the French methodology which is really different from the, uh, the rest and maybe she could add to that I don't know. Right
6: so I have a more specific targeted question so uh, particularly for Yusra and this will also be very useful for Mohit as he goes forward to the fellowship so could you shed some light on your experience at the fellowship because this is a very coveted position which students from all across the world sort of aim for, especially in the field of public international. So could you share your experience at the ICJ?
1: I had a wonderful experience working in the judicial fellowship at the the ICJ. Um, It's something that I would just highly recommend um, for the simple fact that you're really at the heart of you know, the, the heartbeat of like where international law really happens and where so much of it is kind of formed and made and, and thought about. Um, I would say from an academic perspective as well, it's fascinating being at the Peace Palace just because their library and their resources are out of this world um, and their staff as well. And the library is super helpful. Um, and one other thing I would say that's great about the Judicial Fellowship is um that the scope the breadth of international law topics that you're covering is so vast that even if you go in thinking you know i'm i'm a specialized you know um, criminal lawyer or i'm specialized in trade law or something um just being there and um you know, being required to work on, you know, law of the sea issues or human rights issues or something that might be completely out of your breath. Um, It teaches you so much. It um, enables you to create connections between different areas of international law. Um, which really enriches your own understanding of the subject matter, um, your own background. And um, you might even walk out of there um, having, a, a de- you know, having developed different interests in maybe an area of international law or a specific subject that um, you know, wasn't apparent to you before. Um, so I think in terms of having that open mind um, as a generalist in international law, it's extremely beneficial. I, I can't recommend it enough, but I am aware that um, it is um, the selection process is um, is a little bit um, of a challenge and that there is kind of a trend of certain typical universities that um, often will send um, their fellows there every year. And so there is a little bit of a problem with um, diversity. You find that a lot of the same universities um, will be represented year after year. Um, And I I, I did notice that when I was there. um, And I I really hope that that will change in the right direction, especially considering that the General Assembly had just um, very recently Um, started a fund to be able to provide the um, financing for um, particularly African universities that can send more students there for the for the fellowship and I really hope that that will have kind of a a different turn on the type of people that you see um, participating in the fellowship because I really believe that people coming from different legal backgrounds, um, different you know cultural and educational backgrounds, really also enriches um, the work of the court, the perspectives, the discussions that are had uh, within the Peace Palace. Um, so I think that's very important.
6: Mohit, I hope you were taking notes as uh, Yusra was <laughs> saying all of this. So you have this very unique experience at the UN headquarters. So could you shed some light on your experience with the International Law Commission, but also to the fact that since you secured an internship initially, how difficult is it to secure a paid job at the UN headquarters in New York?
2: So, I will just take you through my journey very briefly. I began in 2015 in India because I did not have a master's back then. And as I mentioned earlier, I cannot emphasize enough that a master's really is... A key also for logistical reasons such as visa to, uh, to other avenues. Now a lot was spoken about the centers in Europe but ultimately New York also to the exception of everything else happens to be a center and I had that at the back of my mind when I was applying for a master's in the US and so it was a conscious decision to be able to apply to the UN after my my stint at Stanford. So the initial several hundreds of applications, if I may say so, were unsuccessful. So what I did thereafter was to be applying to the permanent mission of India to the UN. And I would like to make this observation for all of us here, that if we are interested in positions at international organizations, Agencies affiliated to our foreign ministries are actually a great stepping stone and are in fact, some uh, kind of experiences which engage on us more in the deliberations. So I had the fortune of seeing the UN headquarters from both the sides of the coin, if I may put it that way. While I was at the mission, I was actually able to engage in deliberations upon resolutions, which are passed at the UN General Assembly and the Security Council and once my unpaid internship at the mission was over was only when I was able to find in fact crawl my way into the UN Secretariat and find an internship at the UN Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs and there is where I think the visa related logistics were less of a concern because the UN has a G4 visa that can sponsor you and you can be working for them. And that's how I got my paid consultancy there. It was short-lived and currently my position at the International Law Commission also happens to be unpaid, but there are absolutely no regrets because uh, I would like to say here that the ILC, in my opinion, is extremely similar in terms of the work that the ICJ does because it is essentially looking at topics of international law for their progressive development or topics which are a gray area, which are also traditionally topics which are taken to the ICJ because gray areas are disputes. So it's been a topsy turvy ride from being paid to being unpaid to being paid and unpaid again now, but I'll be paid again at the ICJ. So <laughs> yeah. I think there's a lot of patience required upon, uh, upon this path, which we all are treading upon. And I think it's very uh, imperative to zone ourselves out, to have that Zen state of mind and not look at what our peers are doing in other fields of law, which is usually a steady graph, a steady growth. Thanks.
0: Right. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's great that you beautifully summed that up, the experience of an international lawyer. Uh, And there's the sense that there's also a certain amount of, uh, perhaps, a privilege that not everybody has to be able to sustain themselves while they're pursuing an unpaid internship. And these are one of the most common criticisms as well. Uh, Along with unpaid internships, as Ajitola mentioned earlier, that there seems to be this uh, perception that the community of international law is very small, either centered in those European uh, cities or even in the US, uh, and if you're an Australian positivist, uh, then probably you don't consider international law as law. I'm sure you would have heard that from your families and your relatives, uh, that whatever you're doing is meaningless. Uh, but, I, but I would like to hear a bit more about this from Raghavi and Taylor that also talk about uh, how, uh, how in unpaid internships have been helpful to you. And are they as meaningful as they're uh, put out to be? Uh, and along with that, uh, there's something that uh, everybody else should contribute as well that uh, Aritola talked about the importance of networks and participating in moot court competitions and, and other competitions. I would like to hear your take on that as well. Uh, but first, uh, let's uh, hear it from Taylor and Raghavi.
4: Okay, great. So I, yeah, I realized that I, uh, I moved to the Netherlands to do a master's program and I had the opportunity to stay on and do an internship that, for which I received a small stipend. And I realized that I am so lucky to be able to do that. It's not really accessible to everyone. And I think it's a huge problem with unpaid internships. And there's a serious lack of diversity because of that, and that's really awful. So for me, doing my internship has been really beneficial in terms of building a network, gaining experience and more knowledge and really finding where my interests lie. But I really want to encourage everyone who doesn't necessarily have the opportunity to travel abroad to study or to do an internship. There are still ways to break in. I mean, international law happens all over the world. There are universities where you can study international law all over the world. And increasingly, we live in this hyper connected online environment. I mean, even more so now with the global pandemic. And I think there are a lot of ways to engage with international law and practitioners of international law and academics online. So I really don't want to discourage anyone who only has the opportunity to study um, in their home jurisdiction. Do that, but engage with people in LinkedIn. International law world on Twitter is nuts. It's people connecting all over the world, retweeting each other, tweeting at each other and write blog posts. There are really ways to do it. And it's funny, some of the advice that I have repeatedly heard since being here in the Netherlands is, you know, it's really beneficial for you to get some legal experience in your domestic jurisdiction and to really get that practicing experience. And then it's so much easier to break into international law later on. So although I think Yes, yeah, certainly my internship has been really beneficial in terms of the substantive work that I've been able to do and the networks that I can re- build. I really do think it's possible to kind of break into this world, even if you don't have that opportunity.
7: Yeah, picking up from what uh, Taylor said and going, I think this touches upon points that everybody has made. Um, in my personal experience, I I do think that there is no doubt that there is a lack of diversity in the field. Uh, but At the same time, I also feel like a larger part of the responsibility lies on the global south to make inroads. So um, oftentimes we we consider ourselves removed because of how removed we've been and we don't really push ourselves to the point where we can. Like for instance, I think it is important, um, like Tola also mentioned, ultimately it's a question of visibility. So professors everywhere are looking for help. No matter what year you are, wherever you are in law school, tell them you want to help, and they'll take your help. And as soon as you make yourself, as soon as you make yourself noticeable to one person, that creates a chain where you you land yourself up in more useful opportunities, if not useful, at least more opportunities, which is all that matters. And I also think that when you come from the global south, uh, the responsibility is heightened because. Uh, in my experience, I think what we lack the most is really a peer network of people who have done similar things uh, for you to take advice from, for you to be able to counsel, uh, take counsel from. And I think that when you uh, have the privilege, say because of your university or say because of your luck, even uh, to make some inroads, it is absolutely essential that you pass the baton on, that you give the you give all information necessary for people to access these resources back in your home country. And only then will this will you really create uh, the concentric circles that international currently needs, which it doesn't have. Um, And secondly, on the point of the internships, I think that um, it is, again, very, very essential that you look at the sort of work that the internship promises at the start, oftentimes uh, UN internships are clubbed as a group and I don't think that is what is a relevant consideration. I think the the sub area that the organization works in, the unit that you're applying to, the sort of work that the unit already says it's doing, all of these are more relevant considerations um, than just the name of the institution. Uh, Luckily for me, and in fact, uh, I must confess that when I applied to the IRMCD, I was not aware of a core unit existing I actually applied to the appeals unit and uh, when I got to the court I realized that I had been assigned to the core unit. So for me, uh, my internship at the IRMCT was like a a sort of introduction to the unit itself and I'm very thankful in hindsight that I worked there because of um, how integral it is to the IRMCT's current work in that all the bulk of the contempt cases are handled by the core unit, all the uh, national assistance, all the transfer of knowledge that they're doing with national jurisdictions now is also handled by the core unit. So I do think that uh, working, my internship gave me a lot of exposure into um, exposure into how the law really translates in terms of impact and um, what are the skills that the theory doesn't teach you, which uh, was um, uh, quite new for me. And quite I'm quite glad that I had it because now I'm able to factor that in when i do my uh, when i conceive ideas for my phd because i know that there is no point of theorizing in the air i know that it has to be grounded in real right. practice in real policy so in that sense i think it was really helpful
0: right before i come to aisha and tola i see your hands uh, i believe that uh, yusra has to leave so if we can have a final word from her
1: oh well, thank you um well, uh, uh, yeah, there's there's so many different points that people brought up that were so interesting that I'd like to build upon. Um, I definitely can't stress enough um, the importance of um, being proactive. If international law is something that you would like to do, in the sense that building a little bit upon what um, Tola said um, when he mentioned that, you know, depending on what you want to do, what area you want to specialize in, that's the program that you will. Um, the program you'll choose the university program accordingly Um, and I also think that it's okay to not really know what you want to do Um, as Taylor mentioned that that's it's not something that she was um, very sure of but even if that's the case I can't stress enough um, the importance of just like asking trying to get as much experience as you can first of all and if that's not a possibility um which you know I doubt I think people um tend to perhaps not want to dig enough. Um, And Taylor mentioned a lot of great ways in which opportunities can be created by um, yourself. But if you're not able to kind of get the opportunities and experience that you would need to really like inform your decision of what it is that you wanna do, then ask people. I actually think that in my experience, um, People are more often than not very happy to provide uh, information, to uh, act as mentors, to give you advice, um, and Asking people even simple questions such as, you know, what what their job entails or what it's like, um, whether you meet them at conferences or whether you email them. I think you'd be surprised about the amount of positive feedback that you could receive and that could help you have a better idea of, you know, if international law is something for you and um, what, you know, what particular areas might interest you. Um, So there definitely is a a proactivity that's required to, to make it in the field. Um, but it's it's so worth it. And as um, Ragavi said, we need as much um, diversity and inclusion as possible. And I think that we need to carve those opportunities out ourselves a lot of the time. And that's why I think that this discussion is so important to have. So I'm, I'm really thankful to have been a part of it. Um, I wish it could go on for another few hours because I think <laughs> there's so much that we have to say. Um, but I, I do thank you for this um, for this little setup that you made and and for allowing us to exchange. And I hope that that will be the beginning of a a wider uh, discussion. Thank
0: Thank you, Yusra. Yusra. Thank you. It was an Mm -hmm. absolute pleasure to have you and I'm sure we'll have you back at some point in time again. Uh, Thanks, I hope. So so, yeah, uh, Tola and then Aisha.
3: Yes, Um, I would like to just uh, underline uh, how uh, internships are beneficial for theoretical knowledge. So I had two important uh, internships in my life. In my life. Uh, one is uh, one was at the Council of Europe, and the other uh, was at the Transparency International. Uh, Council was very useful, beneficial for developing my knowledge um, in. European Court of Human Rights um, jurisprudence and uh, working on corruption in Transparency International uh, at international level uh, inspired me for a bet- better theoretical uh, knowledge in my um, PhD proposal. Uh, that's all.
8: Um, sorry. So I just I just wanted to flag a, a number of things. Um, I think first is, and I, I and I think it's because no one has flagged it. The place of writing and putting out your reading articles. um I think I think it's a very important place for young professionals. I had some of my big breaks um in that way, so I remember I, I wrote, an article in a book in honor of judge koroma of the icj with a mentor figure of mine so and that ha- actually gave me a lot of visibility um, early in my career so um yeah so i think definitely that's a very important part um writing speaking at conferences attending conferences um the place of mentorships and and i think um you said that the place of um building relationship with mentors and sponsors and those who can help, help and just and, and I think I should flag this also for young professionals like myself and everyone on this call, that, and, and those who are going to listen, that for mentors particularly, the focus should not be how to get things out of them. I think the focus should be how can I provide value to them, how can I support them on the work that they do. That way you build a more organic relationship, and that way they're, lo- they're able to put, um, help you along more in your career than if you're just trying to get things out of them every time. Um, I think I should also wanted to say that a number of internships pay so not all internships are um, paid. I know the internship that I did at the organization for the prohibition of camp weapon, it's not a lot of money, but they pay enough for you to to I think they yeah. pay about is it five, I think it's
0: 450, so 450 about, euros.
8: Yeah, 450 euros. So in, in, in of internships pay. So I think people need to also check that out. They're not pay. Um another thing I was gonna say also is that um there when we think of international law, a lot of us think of international organizations, but international law also happens in our countries, in academias in the foreign services of our countries. And I think people should also pay some mind to looking at those kind of experiences. So a number of times there are institutes in your countries that do a lot of research in international law. The foreign service in your country does a lot of work in international law that you also want to focus on. And so people just every time just think only international organizations. But there's a a concentric circle of what what exists that is not just in international organizations. La- the one the thing I wanted to say also is that, and I think R- R- Raghavi said this already, about providing support to those that are behind you uh, that are also coming up. Because what happens is that you then start to ensure that um, you're also building a, a movement um, in your country and in your space um, in international law. And the thing I was also going to say is that for young professionals, I think there's an importance for finding community. Um, what happens a number of times is that people try to go it alone. But I find that, listen, there's a place for finding community, building relationships with those who are at the same career level as you are. And for instance, I'm hoping that after this call, a lot of us will to keep in touch and just build it. But just building community for those who are at the same level as you are and just being able to support people, and push push um, opportunities to each other's way. Our friends will, um, are always quick to send in, in, in opportunities and information. The last thing I would say is that, my experience is this. My experience is that the biggest and easiest way to build relevance for yourself in the international law community is to focus on the ways that international law actually affects real lives. So for instance, I'm, some of, in, in Nigeria, one of the most prominent international lawyers that we have is someone who's done this whole work around helping to push for use of international organizations to push for human rights um, for people. So that concentric circle of what is the ex, the relevance of international law in real people's lives, in real in the lives of citizens. So, for instance, for someone like myself who does international economic law, a big part is the A F C F T A. What does that mean for businesses? What does that mean for trade? What does that mean? And I think that's an important part also because we can get so caught up in right. that in that international law bubble that we don't actually start to actually apply and how we apply. And the last thing I would say is people should be careful not to get caught up in the internship box where you're pushing one internship after another internship after another internship. You know, you should be careful to say, I've done enough. Now I'm going to go get some experience or some paid, paid, paid work.
0: At mm. some point. I'm glad that you bring that up. Uh, that specifically that writing and research is uh, ideally something which is not restricted by your geography. Uh, so how has, uh, you know, your experience been uh, in terms of, you know, writing to do law journals or reviews and how has that reception been? Uh, maybe uh, Alexander?
5: uh well i feel like i'm going to repeat myself but that just goes on to confirm what i said about the french bubble and that it's it's not a thing for french students french students french law students typically learn uh in their first years that their opinions are not worth writing anything about essentially that's that's sad but that's the that's the way it is uh, one, of the, our, uh, first, uh, our, one of the most common ways in which we are tested in, during our bachelor's is just commenting on uh, judicial decisions. And this is one of the first times they, the, the professors encourage us to actually have a, some critical thinking about what we're reading. But still, uh, typically the the field of uh, writing, uh, well, legal writing, that's something that's reserved for either last year students or like during your second year of masters or PhD students or uh, professors. In France, that's, that's how it works. Uh, recently, we've, I've begun seeing uh, some um, blogs which have uh tried to offer something like this i I think there's a uh, well i i tried writing for one but uh, i had so many classes to take that i could not finish the article i was i was writing about but it's slowly developing in that field at least in france
0: a lot of concerns and challenges have been raised uh, but uh, I, I like how th- there are certain innovative approaches such as Alexander started an international clinic at his university. Uh, IHA started an organization called US Gentium and Mohit was talking about how even if if you belong to a global s- a certain country and there's, there's a dearth of international organizations uh, apparently which are working in your country you can always approach, uh, for example, he approaches permanent mission to the uh, United Nations. So th- there are such approaches as well. Uh, I would like to talk, more specifically about the challenges that people from the global south face uh, while they're trying to enter a career into international law and w- w- what sort of solutions or what sort of ideas do you think uh, can be conceived to address these uh, uh, you know assumptions uh, Raghavi maybe you'd like to add something to that sure
7: uh, quickly on the point of writing um, I completely agree that writing is uh, extremely crucial in terms of your own understanding and in terms of recognition. But what I have noticed is that um, there seem to be lots of differences in um, curriculum and methodology, which is why oftentimes if you're say from India, or if you're from countries where there is not that much of a strong foundation of legal methodology, pieces that you write on international law don't get published in international journals. And, mm. um, that, so there seems to be like, and you end up publishing in national journals, which are not as recognized. So there's really like a big gap that you find hard to overcome. Um, so for this, I think, um, when you do moots or through self-learning, of course, institutional reform would be best. would be ideal. But if that's not possible, then I think student led, um, a, a movements or student-led initiatives which create more discourse on correct legal methodologies, especially in international law, will be extremely helpful for you to get your publication, uh, your writings published in international journals. And I think when you do this, when you get an opportunity where you are able to publish, it is extremely crucial that you cite scholars from the global south, which is very rare. And because we don't do that, we ultimately keep fostering the bubble that we joined. Um, so that's one. And I think that also sort of um, answers your question on um, what we can do as members from the global south. Um, and second, uh, I also think that when you, when you get to universities or when you get to places outside of your country, it, it, gives you, uh, it, gives you, it makes it easier for you to spearhead initiatives that involve your own university say in terms of um, in terms of research profiles or in terms of involving researchers now that uh, most of the work happens on the internet I don 't think there are really any barriers when you know somebody has the caliber to do research. it is absolutely um, it's absolutely feasible for you to get their help regardless of where they are, and when you do that that chain continues so I think that's that's second and third um, I have seen this already there are lots of law schools in India which are uh, which are um, which absolutely support people who uh, study outside and get them to teach and i think it would be nice if we also express our interest to take up visiting faculty positions or, um, or honorary faculty positions in some of the universities in our country so we are able right. to uh, establish some more parity in terms of methodology in terms of curriculum and just transfer of knowledge so yeah.
0: those yeah, but but, but, but there is also the idea that Uh, Unless uh, you have a qualification and an LLM or a PhD from certain Western universities, uh, you're less likely to receive acceptances in certain journals and reviews. Uh, uh, So how how has your experience uh, been regarding that? Mohit, perhaps you can uh, take that one.
2: So, Omer, I'm going to try and give two approaches which are probably not congruent, but those are food for thoughts for, for students who have especially not completed their law studies right now. So I feel that on the one hand, students should see the chronology that they are in and not try to be impatient to try and get in published at the most prestigious journals. So when you are a student, you can do many other things such as take part in moot court competitions, such as take part in in MUNs or set up societies, but these are not things that you can do once you graduate. So that's why I stress on the chronology. You can write even after you graduate, but not the other way around. Now, what taking part in moot court competitions does, and I'm going to give my own example here. During my law school, I had the great opportunity to take part in moot court competitions such as the Philip C. Jessup, William C. Wiss, Vienna, Manfred Lax Stetson. And I kid you not that the researches which I did in each of these moot courts are actually till date my best published research papers because I was able to convert the research of these comprehensive studies that I did by the very nature of moot court competitions which which in fact sack a lot of uh, blood and sweat out of your life when you're participating in them and most of us would agree with this. So I think it's a dual purpose that we can achieve through uh, taking part in moot court competitions. Now on the other hand I feel that we should probably not be very picky and choosy, especially uh, in the beginning of our careers as to where we'd like to get published. Because I think ultimately the content is the king. And if you are confident enough about what you've written, you might get it published at a place which was not your desired place, but that is actually what is going to help you make a mark. And that's how you're going to proceed to a better journal, and so on and so forth. Even my first few publications were not at the best places, but then having acquired that skill set of writing, which Raghavi mentioned, and the fact that my moot court researches, which I felt were, which I'd like to believe were decent enough for getting me those publications, is what I'm trying to allude at. And lastly, I would like to say that no matter which part of the world you're coming from, no matter what your legal training might be, but when you participate in moot court competitions, all that difference dissipates. That is when actually you are at a level playing field. And if you on a given day have worked hard, and of course luck is a factor there, then you can take anyone down and that will that will that entire simulation will give you the much needed impetus to hone yourself to write better in the future as well.
6: No, I think I completely agree with what Mohit had said in fact, uh, since uh, I presume not uh, many of you have participated in moot code competitions, so Back when I did my Jessup Moot Court, I had never studied public international law as a subject. And in fact, I still haven't uh, studied public international law as a subject, but my uh, progression uh, has sort of been through these competitions. And this is how I got to learn international law. And this is over time how I I have grown as well. So Ayesha, if you could, uh, if you have some thoughts on this particular point as well.
3: I have no chance to join uh, any moot court. I had no experience. I was selected for Jessup national, uh, but my university has canceled our participation. So uh, unfortunately, <laughs> but I should leave uh, if you give me authorization. Uh, so Absolutely.
6: I'm, so glad.
3: I'm so glad to meet you really. And I'm very impressed.
0: Likewise.
3: Uh, thank you very much for inviting me tonight.
0: Thank you for coming.
3: Take care. Bye-bye.
6: Very insightful. Bye. So, I think this is where we start to round off the discussion. And if I could just have concluding thoughts from everyone, we'll start with Taylor. So, concluding thoughts.
4: So, I think today's discussion has been really interesting and we've kind of heard from people from all different paths. And I think that kind of is the point. There is no one path in international law. There are so many different opportunities. I mean, you can be an international lawyer in a foreign ministry, at a university, in an NGO, in an academic institute, uh, in a national court, in an international court, in a hybrid court. There are just, there is no set path. So I think that I really have to agree with the points that have been made today and that you really have to do put yourself out there, dig deep and try and make the most of any and all opportunities you have. It can be just as simple as reaching out to someone and asking for some advice for offering your help and then things can really snowball from there. So I think I would just echo that everything that everyone said today and really encourage people who are interested in international law. To go out there and seek it out because it's fascinating and i think a lot of good can be done in the world from international lawyers All
6: Right, alexander if we could just come to you
5: uh well it's going to be really hard to top what taylor just said uh <laughs> but i'm going to try nevertheless um yeah there is no set path and i think everyone has an opportunity to make a name for themselves in international law uh if we just go out and seek those opportunities then anyone can like either seek those opportunities or make those opportunities yourself uh i'm not gonna i don't want to brag by saying this but the the clinic i uh, i created i created because i had no opportunities in paris and because i had an experience with clinics in leiden and i was frustrated that there was no such clinic uh for my project in paris so i created my own and i encourage everyone to that's listening to us to to do this as well if they if they can and if there's any french listeners uh here uh, on this podcast i also encourage them to go beyond this uh bubble i kept talking about today but this is this is because this is a bubble, and we need to burst it.
6: Right, thank you. So, Tola, if we could have concluding thoughts
8: from you. Um, Thank you. So, I I think I'll just start by saying um, one act that I've found for young professionals like myself is to piggyback on the work that others have done. And so what I mean by that is, and I give an example in writing articles, and I think it's probably the simplest example, that if you know a prominent person, lecturer, um, who has already made some name in international law, and you have access to them, they are lecturers or something, what well, you find out the number of times that they already get a lot of offers to in articles in different magazines, but they, don't, they can't take up all those opportunities because they're too busy, they don't have the time to do research. One easy thing I found was to offer to do the research in, in lieu that would both pu- publish the articles together. So it gave me a lot of big opportunities at the beginning of my career where I would say, listen, you have this opportunity from this person. I'll write the article with you and then we could publish it together. So that's, one, just, that's just one thing I was going to say for young professionals. Um, the second thing I would say is there definitely is not one part. Um, everyone would find um, different parts and everyone will find different levels of satisfaction in different parts. And we must be careful not to get railroaded, thinking that one person's success story is the only way to pull it out. So if one person is working in an NGO or working in an international organization, making that quick conclusion that that's the only way to make success in international law. The third thing I would say is that if you've made some success already, open the doors for those that are coming behind you. I can't say that enough. Um, open the doors for those that are coming to you. The fourth thing I would say is, for persons like myself who come from developing countries, and even from, and I think even from those who come from developed countries, what you find a number of times is that you you would quickly develop some level of imposter syndrome when you find yourself in those big rooms because you're thinking, do I do I have the same training that these people have? Do I have the same skill set that they have? Do I have the same methodology? Understand that they have. Let me say this: everyone has the same blood and um, and flesh and brain, and um, even those who you admire a lot, the most um, fantastic lecturers, um, have just the same insecurities that you might think you, you, you face. And so I've learned quickly that what young professionals need to do is to work hard so that when the opportunities come, they're ready for the opportunities that come their way. And the last thing I would say is that build communities, focus on communities, build things together. And yes, anything you plan to do in international law is doable um, if you set your mind to it.
6: Right. So Mohit, if we could have some thoughts from you.
2: Thank you. So I would like to begin with one aspect that I haven't touched yet. And I think which has been a very prevalent theme in today's discussion, which is the importance of networking within this niche circle of public international law or international investment attorneys or the like. I think the power of LinkedIn should not be underutilized. And I say that very specifically, because that has helped me immensely in my my career thus far. Reaching out to people can lead to any responses, but we need not be bothered about how the response is going to be. If there are like-minded people and enthusiastic people like you, then you are going to receive the response that you desire for. Now, besides this, I'm going to try and speak a sentence or two about the four or five topics that we've touched upon today. The first one, which is about a possible path to success in public international law. I think I couldn't agree more with everyone else. There is no set path. And in fact, I would encourage all the listeners today to not have a set path, because if you tread along several paths such as academia, litigation and Uh, going into international organizations, it is only then that you develop a holistic understanding of public international law. And I have really endeavored to do that in my short career thus far. On the point of research papers and and moot courts, as I mentioned earlier, it's just about accessing the right resources and knowing uh, the right opportunities whether or not we get published at the best places should not be much of a consideration early on in your career about uh, about centers of international law i think that distinction is dissipating for the good and we can begin from anywhere and everywhere we have such encouraging examples with us today about about not having opportunities and creating opportunities for ourselves. So I think that sitting in any part of the world, we can ultimately reach our goal. It might take a bit longer, but we should be rest assured that we will get there. On the point of a master's program, I think the foremost thing to keep in mind is to do a master's without any expectations of something that might lead to a fruition after a master's because ultimately what we must also realize is that the entire experience of a master's or a phd is a very beautiful one which is inexplicable in words being with a community of multicultural people learning their best practices not just otherwise but also legal best practices is something that hones all of us as attorneys and better practitioners. So those are my comments. And thank you very much for having me today. Hope to have many, many more such discussions in the future.
6: Definitely very, very insightful. Thank you. So Raghavi, if we could end off today's discussion with your thoughts.
7: Yes, um, firstly, thank you, everybody. I think this was a really insightful discussion and one that must be sustained, um, now that there's been a first start. Um, in in conclusion, I think uh, first, which I don't know if we spoke about enough, is that now that we know that this journey is going to be so long, that there's so much perseverance involved, I think one thing that's absolutely essential is for you to love it, for you to actually love the subject before you decide to completely immerse yourself in looking for opportunities. So uh, I think, uh, Take your time, don't rush into it. Explore all op- explore all subject areas in your domestic, in your uh, preliminary degrees and your further degrees and then be certain that you want to do this and then completely immerse yourself in figuring out how you want to do it. Um, second, um, I think it is also important for us to be conscious not to box ourselves, even in terms of our career choices. Oftentimes, we don't realize how... The career choices we make in our past have a deep influence in what we end up doing. Or you you take a stint and do some uh, advocacy, and then come and do academia. Even that deeply influences the sorts of academic contributions you make. So, like we all agree, there is really no set path, but you must also be also be flexible in the paths you take and be willing to move around. Um, so that that I think that really makes for uh, more fruitful contributions, more, uh, more incisive contributions, if nothing else. And uh, thirdly, like I said at the start, create conversation, sustain conversation, and take international law to your home countries, because that's really uh, the one area where we, do, we haven't explored enough for us to go back to the start, which is where we came from. And I think once we do that, we will um, be able to color international law more, which is really what it means. So I'd like to thank all of you for uh, this platform. And I really hope that the listeners also tune in and create a larger chain of participants in this conversation.
0: Thank you. uh, Thank you, everyone. uh, I I think uh, I speak on behalf of everybody that this was a very enlightening and interesting discussion. And uh, I hope the listeners uh, would agree with us. And if you have nothing else to do, just start a podcast on International Law. It reaches more places uh, than, than than you think it would. So on that positive note, uh, that's all from us uh, this time. And we'll see you in the next episode. Uh, Thank you so much.